welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode number 39 for September 2014. I'm Quinn Dunkey, your co-hostess with the mostest. And uh, with me as always is Mike McGinnis. Hello, Quinn. How are you? I am fabulous. Uh, once again, not Carrington fabulous, but... Uh, well, who is, really? Yeah, pretty fabulous by my standards. So that's... Uh, there'll be 10% less anger and sarcasm this month. <laughs> Good to hear from you again. I was, you know, this is this is your second episode as co-host. There's always a little bit of a voice in the back of my head going, is she going to come back this time? Did we run her off? So I'm glad you're here. Well, you know, I've got nothing better to do, so. <laughs> That's true, yeah. As soon as I get invited to a better podcast, I'm out of here. <laughs> so I think we've got a, a pretty good episode planned out for everybody. we got a, an interview with a name that I think everybody will recognize. Oh, yes. If you've spent any time at all, especially if you've written any software for, for the Apple II or the 2GS, you will probably recognize his books. Uh, we'll get to him in just a minute, though. Yes. My fellow coders should be on the end, edges of their seats right now, because it's going to be amazing. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. So we got lots, to, lots of news to talk about. Uh, we had... Uh, the uh, very meaty wall-to-wall Lawless Legends uh, interview last month, so uh, we didn't get to talk about much news, so uh, we got lots piled up here. We'll catch up on some of the stuff and, you know, the less interesting things. Not that there's ever anything that's less interesting in the Apple II world, but... Bite your you know, tongue. That's right. We'll, we'll move through it quickly and uh, on to bigger and better things after that. Everything Apple II is amazing. Don't forget it. To infinitum, something, something. I'm the obnoxious born-again Apple II fan, so I'm all enthusiastic about everything now. Yeah, that's uh, how's that going? You've, you've sort of uh, it's been a couple of months now. Have you has the has the uh, the um, sheen worn off the golden apple, so to speak? Well, the paint's almost dry in my shrine. It came out really nice. Uh, got a nice a, a nice bust of Waz. Uh, I carved that out of uh, marble. <laughs> that, uh, that took some time. I had to learn sculpture and all that. But uh, sure, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, aside from that, perfectly normal human behavior. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know it's going great. Um, I read a bunch of books by. Uh, uh, someone who we'll be talking to shortly and uh, have been doing some programming. And uh, in fact, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later in the show, I think. So, um, yeah, uh, no no end in sight to, to my enthusiasm for the old stripey apple. Great. We look forward to the the fruits of your labors. <laughs> but um bump ah. Well, see, it's because he said fruit. I don't know if our listeners caught that because... I'm sure be, they did. Because, I'm not because, that subtle and they're, they're a lot because, smarter than I am. Because apple. So. Yeah, because fruit. So, yeah. So, should we dive in here? Sure, why not? So uh, I guess we should. Uh, we we almost need a, a a section at this point in the show for for halt and catch fire. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, yes, we do. There seems to be no end of, of retro goodness to talk about. In fact, I'm sure all the podcasts are talking about it. I know Retro Computing Roundtable has hit on it a couple times. But uh, yeah, recently there's been a couple of uh, notable Apple II cameos on there. Uh, probably my uh, my favorite one is uh, I think it's uh, I mean the. The season season one is over now. I believe it was eight episodes, and I think it was season, episode seven or eight where 
they were at a they're at the they're at Comdex, the big trade show, and they're in one of the uh, hotel rooms hearing a pitch about a printer that these two guys have developed. And it's sort of it's a funny scene because they're kind of nerdy guys. They don't have their you know they don't have a jobs. It's sort of two wazes together trying to pitch this, and <laughs> you know they're trying to the show. I think is kind of making the point that you need the sales guy and you need the tech guy or woman, as it were. So they're kind of uh, yeah, it's it's a funny scene. Uh, these two uh, engineers trying to trying to be salespeople. Uh, so the printer that they're hawking, I guess, is sort of a improvement over the dot matrix printers of the day. And the prop, it's it, the prop itself is actually an image writer too, and they've kind of glued some stuff to it. So <laughs> it's really quite hilarious because there's there's a pretty good close up of it, and I got a decent screen grab of it, which we'll put in the show notes, because the image writer too is such a beautiful industrial design. They sort of had to disguise it as something else, so they glued all this crap to it, and everything they glued to it made it uglier. So it's this <laughs> really, it's sort of this craft project. Uh, I have to say props to the set dresser, because they uh, managed to track down an image writer too, which honestly not that easy, so good good on them for that. I just realized I made a funny by giving props to the set dressers. See what I, see what I did there? See what you did there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Obi. I'm here all week. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll edit in uh, some some sound effects there, the crowd Jeez. clapping and stuff. So. Man, tough room, man. No laughs for the f- Mike's fruit joke, and no laughs for that. Could be crickets. Yeah, could be crickets because there's nobody else in the room with us. <laughs> Maybe so. We need to do this in front of a live studio audience. Clearly. Oh goodness, no, 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 no. <laughs> that would be awful. <laughs> All right. So moving along, uh, the other uh, cameo recently was uh, Cameron, the uh, hotshot programmer uh, woman in the show, says that uh, at one point that she learned to code on an Apple II. It's just sort of a, a passing remark, but uh, I, uh, of course, my ears perked up. Let's see the uh, the other one caught my eye. So the machine that they develop in the show is probably loosely based on Compaq. Uh, they call it the Giant, and in one of their big demos, they uh, demonstrate Rocky's boots running on it, which of course is well known to to many of us who you know grew up in in schools with the Apple II. That was one of those sort of edutainment type of things that uh, everybody had on their Apple II. And uh, it was a really terrific piece of software. I mean, taught, uh, you know, digital logic and, and problem solving and, and all in sort of a fun way. And they had, they claimed to be running it on the giant and it sort of looked like it, but it was cropped weirdly. So I have a feeling it, the screen was kind of corrupted. I think it was sort of a, um, I don't know, like a special effect of some sort. They'd taken a screen possibly from the Apple II version of it, and then kind of cropped it and scaled it and made it monochrome and sort of managed to put it on the screen of this giant somehow. I don't know. It was very strange, but it didn't... Hmm. It, you could tell it was Rocky's boots, but it was sort of a weird corner of a screenshot or something. It was very strange, but... I imagine they just didn't want to make it completely recognizable to people that were watching. Because yeah. I think by now they figured out that geeks like us watch this thing and analyze everything that they do. Oh, yes. Emails from angry, <laughs> angry nerds going, you did this wrong. That's right. As, yes. As, uh, as we are, in fact, literally picking this show apart frame by frame on this very show. <laughs> so uh, we, right. we should not be wondering why they might be concerned about people doing that. Mm. Uh, and the evidence would suggest that people are, in fact, doing it right this very moment. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's see. Moving along, I guess uh, we have to... We have to mention it, even though it's not an Apple II. But of course, uh, so the show has been progressing forward from 1982-ish or something, and they've reached 1984, I guess, now. And so, of course, the Mac has finally made an appearance. And uh, they did a very strange thing. They had it. They had it do this speech synthesis in in the demo, which 
I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was nonsense, right? I mean, that didn't happen. Do you remember? I, I don't remember that specific moment of the episode. Oh, well, but I mean, in, in the Max introduction. I mean, there was no speech, right? I mean, it... Yes, actually, there was. Was there really? Yeah, the huh. when when wa- or was there we go, when uh, Jobs pulled it out of the bag and and set it on the um, he, he kind of set it on the stand and and he turns it on and it says it does the hello across the screen and then right. it does this it gives this speech where it says hello I'm I'm I would like to introduce it's this <laughs> it's very funny you can tell that that Jobs composed the text because it it introduces. Jobs as as his father figure and, and and stuff like that, and then it makes a joke about uh, not trusting a computer you can't lift up. You know, <laughs> in reference to like main fr- room size mainframes, right? Uh, but yeah, it was there was a that that early kind of robotic Mac uh, speech synthesis was there from the very beginning. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's the same samples and the sound that they they used in in Halt and Catch Fire, but yeah, yeah, that was that was one of the key. Things about the Mac was that it, okay. it could talk to you. I stand corrected. Yeah, I remember it was a big deal that it showed the screenshot that said hello in a little, you know, uh, script, nice uh, cursive writing and so on, because that was sort of such a personal thing when, you know, everyone else's computers just had text, terminal text style uh, display. So that uh, that was a big deal. But yeah, I, I didn't remember the speech thing. I felt that I thought that maybe that was a uh, sort of dramatization uh, to emphasize how personal and friendly it uh, it was. So, eh, interesting. I stand corrected. It's uh, all over YouTube, and we'll, we'll definitely have a link to one of the, I guess, <laughs> better remastered versions of that video on the <laughs> yes. web. It's, most of them have, have faded poorly over time. but For sure. So, uh, and then uh, the only other thing that caught my eye was, uh, it's not exactly Apple II related, but for some reason, uh, the char- again, character of Cameron, uh, she, the subject of, of Deck came up at some point, and <laughs> she pronounced it D-E-C, which I thought was very strange. And I don't know if the writers didn't correct her, or the director didn't correct her, or I don't know, I've never heard anybody call it D-E-C. I've actually heard that a lot recently. This is, jeez, this is going to be a, a get off my lawn moment. <laughs> Um, As opposed to know, the rest of this show, which is right, right, yeah. all about you, youthful. Uh, well, you know, it, you and I were around back then. And, and so you know that Digital Equipment Corporation, you either called it digital or you called it DEC. There right. was no DEC. Yeah, DEC, what is that? Um, there have been a couple of podcasts by them youngsters where they <laughs> they, they they say DEC. And I think this was a, a moment of that where maybe those who are either writing it or, or – Proofing the script um, weren't around, or at least weren't interested in computers at the time, and wouldn't have known that this is something that you wouldn't have said to EC. Right? Yeah. Yes, it's probably safe to assume that at least some of the writers on the show were born well after all of these events uh, took place. So uh, you know they're going to they're going to want that youthful uh, sort of take on the show. So they're going to hire youthful writers. But uh, yeah, I am also screaming, "Get off my lawn!" It is uh, <laughs> it is digital or it is deck. I've never heard anyone call it DEC. All right, so with that uh, very uh, emotionally balanced take on that situation, let's uh, let's move on. <laughs> uh, so we do have some actual uh, exciting Apple II news that we should talk about. Uh, the first uh, first thing that I want to uh, dive into is is uh, Dagan Brock uh, has started mm-hmm. a, a video series on programming for the 2GS, and uh, he's put up his first video on YouTube, uh, which we'll have a link to in the show notes. It is just fantastic. Uh, I really can't say enough good things about it. The production quality is great. He's got animation. He's got music. He's got, you know, titles. And it's really nicely produced. And it's fun to watch, even if you're not, you know, super into the programming. Because it's, you know, he dives right into the eye candy, you know, with a couple of keystrokes. He shows how you can make the 2GS do some really, uh, really neat things. So 
really looking forward to, to more of these videos. They are fantastic. Dagan, for the past couple of years at Kansas Fest, has given these um, programming the 2GS sessions, and they've always been very popular, and they're very well done. And I think this is sort of an extension of that, making that available to more people, because everybody shows up at Kansas Fest, you, get, you either get to see it and some people video it, but I, I guess for whatever reason, those videos haven't escaped onto the internet yet. It's great that he's providing sort of the same thing without the requirement of having to travel to Kansas City if you don't want to. I have not watched this new, uh, the YouTube video that he's put up yet. So is this something, do you already have to have an understanding of assembly before you get into this? Or is this like from the very basics? No, I mean, I would say it's not a uh, it's not a, a tutorial on assembly language for sure. I mean, you definitely want to have some grasp of that. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's I would say it's targeted at someone who is interested in low level programming uh, and has done some maybe on more modern platforms. Maybe you've written microcontroller code for, you know, propeller or an Atmel chip um, and you're sort of interested in retro programming. Uh, this is kind of the type of place where you could start and sort of explore. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that's where the real value of it is, is that uh, I think there's a lot of people out there who are, would be interested in programming for retro computers. Again, all these people that are writing code for Arduinos and, and, and all these different microcontrollers and Raspberry Pis and so on, those same people would probably really enjoy writing for retro computers because they're, you know, they're basically, by today's standards, of course, they're basically, you know, embedded uh, microcontrollers, but with cool video and, and sound and disk drives hanging off of them. So this is the kind of video that someone who's only been exposed to modern platforms could watch and see, you know, it really lowers the barrier to entry for someone, I think, to, to get into it. So... Uh, I love seeing stuff like this because that's what we need is for if we want to get more people writing code for these platforms, this is just the kind of thing we need. So, I, you know, you see this all the time on, on the message boards where somebody will post, you know, uh, my dad gave me this 2GS or I found this on mm -hmm. eBay or a thrift store. What do I do with it? Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of times these are the people that you describe. They're kind of, you know, the, the programmer types who are have a career in programming or have a, a strong interest in, in, in modern platforms and and want to explore more and having these guides out there kind of keeps the interest going in, in the older platforms. Yeah. And, and what's great about, uh, about Dagan's video is, is that the barrier to entry is basically zero. I mean, you know, if I was, if I had made this, I would have probably foolishly, you know, made the first six videos about how to install Orca M and, you know, <laughs> get GSOS running with 68 extensions and whatever else that you might need. So, you know, his video, you literally, he turns the machine on and hits reset and types a few keystrokes and amazing colors happen on the screen. So, you know, oh, it's nice. the, the barrier to entry is zero. If you buy a 2GS on eBay, you, you can sit down and do this without even plugging in the floppy drive. So that's that's what's really great about this. And, you know, because the the, the demo that he shows is, is fun and colorful and he makes the GS do a lot of really fun looking things, I think it'll help maybe show what these platforms were capable of, because I think people may not know. Uh, someone who was born, you know, in the 90s or something, grew up not knowing what these machines were actually capable of, uh, might be able to watch that and see, oh, wow, you know, this, that's really cool. So uh, might stoke some interest there as well. I found that the the guides and the, the sort of, you know, how-tos that, that I respond best to, the ones where I, I come away from it thinking that I've, I've actually learned something that I'm going to remember 10 minutes from now are the ones where I can get, you know, an immediate, immediate tactile response, you know? So mm -hmm. like he, like you said, he's, he's putting colors up on the screen immediately. And it's something that you can do immediately at home. There's a, a 
a JavaScript-based 6502 learning system online. I think it's called Easy 6502, and we'll have the link to that in the show notes as well. Where where it it immediately starts with you typing code in into this into this 6502 emulator and and having the response boom right there on the screen. Because a lot of the if you go back a lot of these older guides and books. Not there's not that there's anything wrong with learning this way because a lot of people respond as well to that. But they'll they'll start with you. Okay, let's learn the basics of binary math and mm-hmm. and you know hexadecimal uh, addition and subtraction, which is is fundamental and it's important. But it's also really boring. And if you're kind of looking for something that you you feel like you can it, at least feels like it's easy to take the first few steps. Um, I've found anyway that the method that that you're seeing with with Degen and, and with Easy sixty five hundred two, I respond a lot better to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and you know those old books were written that way largely because that was sort of the the official computer science way to learn this stuff. You know, especially yes. at the time. I mean, yeah. You, Spend three chapters learning what two's complement is and, and why right. why it's the best way to represent <laughs> negative numbers. And, you know, and if you took this stuff in school, like a lot of us did, you know, you, you spent two weeks learning the history of trying to represent negative numbers in binary and why we, <laughs> why we landed on two's complement and why it's a big deal and how it's great. But... Uh, yeah, and it's and it's an elegant thing, and you need to know it at some point. But you know that 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 puts up a big barrier to entry for someone who just wants to play around. Uh, no one on their as a hobby in their spare time is gonna is gonna sit down and, and learn the stuff that way. So you know, as while there are lots and lots of great books out there on programming these machines, uh, the barrier to entry on a lot of them is pretty high. Now, speaking of of kind of experiencing the the older platform and getting. Uh, immediate response. You you mentioned uh, the Arduino, and there's obviously the Raspberry Pi and things like that. Now, when you were at Kansas Fest, you brought this cool thing along everybody wanted, and we couldn't have. Darn you! <laughs> yes, I teased you all with my oh. fancy, fancy hardware. So <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think that was that was fun to bring that uh, because I think a lot of people don't know that Western Design Center is still alive and kicking, and they still make the 6502, and uh, they're doing really cool new stuff with it uh, as we speak. So. Uh, you know, I've been in touch with them a little bit. Uh, they had found uh, Veronica, my, my homebrew 6502 machine, and uh, sort of been in touch with them ever since, back and forth a little bit. And they've been looking for, for people to try out this uh, new board that they're developing. Uh, it doesn't exactly have a name yet. They're sort of calling the whole series of boards the 65XX boards. And for any listeners who weren't at KFest or aren't uh, familiar with them, they're basically... Uh, along the lines of an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi or a BeagleBone, one of those types of things, a sort of a standardized uh, embedded system platform that you can build your own homebrew projects on top of. And uh, what sets these boards apart is, of course, they have a 6502 in them, and there's also a 65816 version for the GS snobs out there. I guess the Super Nintendo snobs maybe too, um, but you're listening to the wrong podcast. So uh, <laughs> they're smart. They were looking for a a hook that would set them apart from the BeagleBone and, and, and the Arduino and all the rest. Uh, there's a bit of a glut of those sorts of uh, hobbyist development boards out there. And what really sets these apart is that the full address and data bus is exposed in your uh, in your GPIO headers. And in addition, you know, it's got the full power of memory mapped I.O. from the 6502, which is something that these, uh, you know, other boards can't do. Most of them are built on like a system on chip or a microcontroller where the, the entire sort of von Neumann machine of a computer is inside the die. So your address and data bus and everything are 
forever trapped inside the, the chip. You can't ever get access to them. So everything is done through ports on the chip, uh, you know, IO pins that you can turn on and off and change direction. And uh, you're always going to be limited by that because there's only so many pins on the physical chip. And anyone who's ever developed with an Arduino or similar knows you immediately run out of IO pins. There's never enough. So uh, mm-hmm. just exposing the address and data bus, something that 6502 can do that those other chips can't, is just sort of basically solves that problem because now you have, you know, 65,536 IO pins if you want, you know, full memory mapped IO. So uh, in theory, there's there's very little limit on that. So long story short, uh, there's been some developments. They're nearing production on these boards. Uh, they don't have a date yet, but uh, uh, they're, uh, they're going to be posting updates. They have a Facebook page uh, where, where they'll be posting updates and uh, they're encouraging people to... Uh, watch uh, their website, uh, wdc65xx.com. And of course, those links will be in the show notes uh, for uh, updates on that. So uh, yeah, they're uh, they're getting close with them. We'll keep an eye on it. I can't wait. Yeah, Actually, I can because I have to. But yeah. Well, yes. I want one. <laughs> and so as I'm looking through our spreadsheet here, I'm, I noticed an item that uh, you added. Quinn, and I, I guess maybe, maybe it's best to let you kind of talk about this. This is the the DuoDisc 3.5 prototype? Yeah, so we don't usually uh, talk a lot about eBay stuff. Being a monthly show, it doesn't work super well because, of course, any auction we talk about is long going to be over by the time mm-hmm. the show airs. But uh, plus, we just end up getting scooped by Retro Computing Roundtable and the other uh, more uh, more uh, frequent podcasts. But uh, Those jerks. Yeah. Ooh, shake, my, shake my fist in your general direction. <laughs> There's been a couple of really interesting items that that went by on eBay recently that just really deserve a mention. One is the uh, the DuoDisc 3.5 prototype that went up, and I believe it was Sean Fahey's. I think I think there's only what three of these or something in existence is the rumor. Uh, uh, there's been this sort of strange run of items. So one of these DuoDisc 3.5 prototypes came up uh, a few weeks ago on eBay, and it came and went, and it sold for several hundred dollars, I think. And no one was, I think, entirely sure who owned that one, because I think if I understand correctly, Sean Fahey owns one and Tony Diaz owns one. And there was a third one that was maybe theorized to exist, but no one knew for sure where it was. And we think this is the one that appeared. And for anyone who doesn't know, this is uh, a prototype of two three and a half inch drives that would say, you know, look good sitting next to your GS. And they're stacked on top of each other as opposed to the side by side five and a quarter version. And it's so it's sort of 75% the height of two three and a half inch drives stacked up. So that's sort of all one case with two drives in it. It's really kind of neat looking. So I guess it came out just a little bit too late. You know, maybe the, the GS was already on the downswing and hard drives were already coming in. So maybe it was just a little bit too, too late. But uh, it's definitely a neat device. And uh, so the one, that, the second one that came up on eBay, uh, it was listed for $1,000. It did not sell. And I believe that was Sean Fahey's. And I believe that was, if I'm, again, I'm sure listeners will correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's the only one that actually is known to work. I think the others don't. So... That was a really cool item, and uh, I was uh, yeah, it was a bit of a shame that I guess it didn't get a buyer, but uh, more uh, neat stuff for Sean Fahey's collection for sure. So, uh, and sort of uh, along those lines again, uh, another crazy rare item came up uh, all at once. Uh, there was two of these memory expansion boards uh, from Applied Engineering uh, for the Apple IIc Plus, 
And they come with a matching little daughter board, which is called the D-Clock. And it's sort of a real-time clock that works in conjunction with this memory expansion. So the, uh, uh, sort of the, the sweet setup back in the day would be to own both of these. You know, the real-time clocks were not that common for, for the 2C and the 2C+. Plus. So this was one of the few that you could get. And this D-Clock is apparently just insanely rare. Apparently, if you Googled them... The only picture you could find of this thing was Sean's picture, Sean Fahey's picture of his. Uh, apparently, this thing was so rare that there weren't even any photos of it on the inter- on the interwebs, and not one but two of them passed through eBay recently. So, uh, yeah, in fact, actually, as we speak, I don't know exactly when the show is going to air, but as we speak, the second one, the auction, is still running. The first one went for north of seven hundred dollars uh, for the the. T- the for the set of the RAM expansion and the D-Clock. So uh, I'm sure the second one will go for the same. I guess there's a couple of uh, big-name bidders who will spend anything for rare Apple II items, and apparently the two of them just go at it on every one of these auctions. So, <laughs> uh, But, it, yeah, it's very strange that, you know, these things that are so rare that no photos of it even exist, uh, and suddenly two of them are on eBay. So uh, it's funny how that goes. So I thought that was, yeah. thought it was worth a mention, even though we don't talk about eBay here. Yeah. Now, now speaking of, of rare... Apple IIc appliances or uh, um, accessories and, and peripherals and things like that. Over on AppleFritter.com, uh, uh, there is a, a, a thread about the uh, uh, something called the C drive and and the C keeper. So the C drive was made by a company called Applied Ingenuity, which I, I imagine they probably were trying to capitalize on Applied Engineering's popularity. <laughs> yeah, that name is a little suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they made this thing called the C drive. And what this is, is it's a, a replacement for your Apple IIc. It replaces the internal five and a quarter inch drive with a SCSI hard drive. But it also has um, it, it has a, a floppy drive of its own uh, as part of the setup. And, and they weren't in production for very long and they're, they're very rare. And the poster's name, his uh, username is Jeff Mazur. I'm sure that's his real name. And then there's also something called the Sea Keeper, which is, it, and again, this is a board that it plugs into the, the expansion slot, the, the plug on your 2C. So you need to have one of the later uh, ROM revisions that can handle it. Um, and it looks, it's cut similarly to the um, to the ZRAM that, that Applied Engineering made. And because I don't know that you can fit anything in there that's not cut that way, but it has a, the clock and it has... I think it's 1.25 uh, megabytes of RAM on the board, and it also has this this RAM saver option. So, if you had a, a 2GS back in the day, you may remember. I think it was called the RAM Keeper or the RAM Saver. Yeah, but, RAM Keeper. Yeah. Uh, well, this is sort of a similar thing, but it's for your Apple IIc. And again, this is uh, applied in- ingenuity, and they didn't make very many of them. Well, Jeff has one, and he's got a video of the thing in action that you can watch, and he's got screen dumps of the of the, the Seakeeper's commands, and uh, definitely neat checking it. Out, neat to check out. Sean Fahey is uh, posted that it um, it looks like they're trying to to pressure him to to at least rom dump the thing, which would be awesome if he did that. So uh, we'll have links to the Apple Fritter threads that apply, um, and it's cool to see stuff like that kind of show up, especially, you know, 25, 30 years later. And I, I don't know why the stuff surfaces now as opposed to earlier, but there it is. Yeah, that's this is a really fun read, especially if anyone technically minded. Uh, this thing is super, super cool. Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, it's it was so bold to even attempt a peripheral like this. And uh, 
it's the, the it's a, the article is a great read because he goes into all the technical details of it, how it works, and uh, how he uh, interfaced with it. There's uh, you know there's sufficient technical detail there that I believe you could actually build one for yourself if you were so inclined. Uh, and you know the he, the guy is justifiably really proud of it. So uh, he's written detailed notes about uh, all the really clever things he did. Uh, my favorite was. Uh, he uses the reset button uh, on the Apple IIc to interact with uh, with the device and control it. Mm, and cool. uh, he determined that the reset button, when you push it by itself, of course, doesn't normally do anything. Uh, you have to press control or control and open Apple with it. He calculated the exact resistor value to create a voltage divider that so that on on the keyboard on the strobe line so that he can actually detect the difference between a reset and a control reset or a control open Apple reset. Wow, very and, cool. Uh, yeah, it's super cool. So you can do all these things with double and triple tapping the reset button to uh, to to control his devices. Uh, it's just super super clever. And if you're into home brewing, GG Labs has posted. I guess open source plans would be the, fra- the, the phrase that I would use uh, to build your own 4 meg 2GS RAM cards. From what we can tell, it, it looks functionally uh, to be a clone of the, the Applied Engineering GS RAM card. It's over at uh, gglabs.us, and they've got a whole bunch of neat kind of the do-it-yourself projects there and more modern platforms and, and hardware to play with, but it, it's kind of cool to see this thing just kind of pop up right there at the top of the list. Yeah, I'm hoping someone does something similar for the the 2C RAM cards because, uh, like we've been talking about them a lot here, but uh, the uh, it's a, they're a bit of a black art. You know, only certain models of the original 2C support them, and then the uh, 2C Plus is not. Some of the 2C cards, the earlier ones, are not compatible with the 2C Plus because there was some weird timing issues. There's a tech note on that, and so if you if you want to get one of these, you know. RAM expansions for your any model of 2C. It's a bit of a black art to know exactly whether you can and which one to get and then to try and find one. So uh, I would love it if someone uh, did something similar for the 2C. Lots of us have the means and desire to make one at home. We just don't know uh, how to do it, don't have the schematics. So. But in the meantime, if you if you want to, you can try your hand at building, they, they call it the RAM GS, and they have uh, PDFs that you can download that include the schematics. Uh, there's a Gerber file and the, the uh, ROM code that you will need to make this thing work in your 2GS. It's because every GS owner's self-worth is measured by the amount of their RAM expansion, as we all know. That's, of course. I had, uh, I had one and a quarter megs back in the day and felt like a pretty big deal at the time. <laughs> you were fancy. That's right. I was queen of the playground. <laughs> Again, here's another homebrew project. Um, this is for definitely a, a more, I'd say, more advanced topics. Um, a few years back, well, geez, I guess it's been about five years now, they, there was a card introduced called the, the Cart Blanche for the Apple IIgs, and this was a sort of a blank slate CPLD uh, prototyping board that you could use in your Apple II. It sold out pretty quickly, I think. They, they had a run of, I think, like 50 boards maybe. And I think the, the hope was that people would use these to come up with hardware projects that they could then turn into products that would be sold to the community. And I don't think that really happened. There there definitely were a couple of people who spent a lot of time with the, the carte blanche and came up with some neat stuff. I don't, you know, I, I don't know that 
that ever went any further than that. But it looks like they're now gauging interest in a second run of the carte blanche, calling it the carte blanche 2. It's going to have plenty of new features. And so if you missed out on the first run or if you have decided between then and now that you want to try your hand at, um, at prototyping projects with the Apple II, you can head over to the Compsys Apple II news group and there's a thread there. We'll have a link in the show notes and you can uh, indicate your interest. Yeah, this is exciting. I mean, CPLDs and FPGAs are really the magic sauce that uh, uh, unlocks all manner of crazy magic with the Apple II, so that uh, we definitely need to get more people playing with these things. Yeah, as, as I understand it, you can do things, you know, like you, if you wanted to, if you, if you wanted to build a USB interface to your, for your keyboard and mouse, theoretically, you could do it with this card. Totally, totally, yeah. Yeah, a nice example is the uh, the MP3 card uh, from Vince Briel. Uh, right. You know, because what's great about these these uh, chips is that they're so fast that, you know, you can have them do all of the heavy lifting and just have the Apple II kind of along for the ride and sending little commands back and forth. And uh, so, yeah, they're really, there's very little that you probably can't do. Uh, you know, you're effectively putting an entire other computer inside your Apple II at that point. So there's really no limit to, to what you can and can't make it do. I remember when the first one was announced, I think there was some confusion, and I don't know if it was the way that they rolled it out or what it was specifically, but I'm pretty sure there was, you know, confusion with people who thought that they could plug this into their Apple II and that would automatically give them, oh, I could plug a USB in right now and and be good to go, and, and I don't think that's really what that was. Um, and, and I think maybe that's why a lot of these cards sold and you didn't really see much because people got them and well, what do I do with this thing? Yeah, I, when, when they first came out, I think I remember that there was a lot of confusion about what exactly it was. Uh, I think maybe it might, may, it might have been aimed at the wrong demographic because uh, if, yeah, if you target software people or end users, you know, they're not going to know what a CPLD is. And it's a bit of a niche skill set to know how to, how to program one of those. And, you know, you've got to know some VHDL or something to, to sort of get, any, get it to do anything. Anything. So uh, hopefully uh, they have a little better luck this time. Yeah, fingers crossed. And um, I, I don't know that I'll be signing up for one of these, um, <laughs> but you know, I will I be. Know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course you will. <laughs> uh, you're somebody who can actually put it to use instead of st- I would put it in my 2E and go, wow, that's cool. And that would be the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been wanting um, to teach myself actually uh, uh, programmable uh, logic. So this is, uh, you know, I took a little bit of it back in school, but uh, this is a great excuse to sort of combine the desire to learn programmable logic with. Uh, the Apple II quality time. So, Well, there you go. So all of you out there who have been wanting to get into this and don't know how, wait for Quinn to get hers, <laughs> buy yours, and then when she starts doing stuff, just bug her. <laughs> Good. That's what I need. It's more mail. Uh, getting back to eBay for just a second, I'm seeing that you scored something kind of cool on eBay. Oh, how did I, how could I have forgotten? Yes, that was supposed to be in my eBay section. So uh, our show notes are train wreck people. Uh, <laughs> I, I take all the blame. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not a big eBayer, and uh, it shows in some of my uh, some of my my uh, shopping mistakes that I've made. But um, yeah, this time I really scored. So I, it turned out well, although it I thought it was going to be a disaster. What uh, what I picked up was the uh, one of the original uh, carrying bags for the two C. And uh, okay. I love those things. You know, they got the strap and they got the right. little logo in the corner. And so this is the uh, one with the logo in the lower right, which is, uh, my understanding, is the rarer version of it. You usually see the logo in the top left corner. This is in the lower right. 
and uh, it's spotlessly clean, which uh, is also hard to find. And the real kicker is that all of the dividers inside are there, which they never are. So oh, wow. yeah. uh, in addition to the, there's a, a pair of vertical dividers, uh, one of the compartments also has a, a cover over it. Uh, that's Then that cover is just never there. I think it's supposed to be for the power supply because it's got a little hole cut into the corner where maybe the cable would come out. So it looks like you're supposed to be able to put the power supply in there and leave it in there, plug the computer in uh, without removing it. So anyway, it's neat. Um, uh, This one came up and it it came up with uh, quite a high price as they often do on eBay. These bags, you know, there's always a couple of them on eBay, but they're always, of course, way overpriced because eBay and... uh, uh, but this one had a, a make an offer button on it. So uh, I threw kind of a lowball offer out there because I figured out oh, what the heck. And it was accepted. So, but uh, that was my first rookie mistake. I, uh, I didn't realize you get three chances to make an offer. So it's sort of like Priceline or something. What I, I should have uh, lowballed uh, lower because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize I get two more chances to do this. So um, I, I tried to pick a price that was low, but I thought had a decent chance of being accepted as well. But yeah, I, I scored it for about half of what they uh, usually uh, are listed for on eBay, so I was pretty happy with that. So my, but then my second rookie mistake was I didn't check up on the seller. Uh, so after I had paid the money, I looked, and the oh. seller had zero <laughs> feedback. And I was like, "Oh no! <laughs> well, that money's gone." <laughs> but uh, apparently, it really was just someone who had never been on eBay before. Oh. And uh, so, after a few days, I hadn't seen anything about it having shipped. And that's when I looked at the feedback and thought, "Okay, well, this is this is bad." But uh, yeah, apparently, it just really was that responded to my email, and they were like, "Oh yeah, I'm shipping it," and they were excited that I was actually going to use it for two uh, C. So uh, yeah, I got lucky. It really was was just someone new to eBay in this day and age. When does that happen? So, and that same seller has a oh. bunch of other cool Apple II stuff. So, well, and you know, I, again, this is that goes back to that age thing for us. eBay goes back to, you know, 98, 99, mm. something like that. Yeah. And most of us have been on it for a, a significant portion of that time, but people, mm. there are weirdly, there are people younger than us who, <laughs> you know, are, are in their late teens, early twenties now. And are somebody's, you know, everybody's got to start, somewhere at some point everybody's going to have zero feedback yeah, so it's true. it's just good that it, in your case it was somebody who actually was honest and wasn't just trying to rip you off yeah yeah it's true and and again back to the getting off my lawn portion of the show mm-hmm. uh it's you know back back in the late 90s uh everybody was basically honest and, and friendly i mean in the in the early days everybody on ebay was just someone who had some stuff in their garage that they wanted to sell you know in fact at the time everybody was amazed at how honest everyone was convinced, oh, this isn't going to work. It's going to be riddled with scams and, you know, it's, it's, this is never going to work. And everyone was amazed at how well it did work. And now eBay's kind of turned into what everyone was afraid it was going to turn into. It's sort of, right. it's riddled with scams. <laughs> and basically every single listing is a dealer who's trying to, you know, make a profit off something that they bought on Craigslist or elsewhere. So uh, it's very hard to find just that genuine person who just has stuff in their garage they want to sell for a fair price. So... Uh, but it does still happen. Well, I'm glad it was able to reaffirm your faith, even if it was only a little bit. Mm, yes, I'm very excited. I got the bag. I'm so. looking at um, Google Images right now because I have this I have this distinct memory in my head of an uh, an ad for the Apple IIc where 
There was a, a woman who had kind of a mm -hmm. hat that was down over her eyes, and yep. she was carrying the 2C in the bag. Now, what I'm seeing is her holding the 2C. I'm not seeing the bag ads. So yes. Maybe, maybe my head is sort of... I did the exact same thing after I got the bag. I thought, wasn't there an ad for this, and it would be cool? And yeah, I had the same memory, and yes, I found the same thing. I was misremembering that, yeah, she's actually just car mm. carrying the 2C uh, naked, as it were. But uh, I think that I, I, I still do have a vague memory of some ad featuring uh, featuring that bag. Maybe uh, our memories are failing us as we are getting on in years. Well, you yeah, are anyway. Maybe that was well, – hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is like the a weird podcast version of Picture of Dorian Gray where I age and you don't. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the, and it may be that that ad was either used as like, you know, a promotional – uh, advertising for, you know, the 2C is coming and they don't want to show the product yet. So she's just holding the bag to kind of whet your appetite. That could be. Because it's just a bag with an Apple icon mm -hmm. on it going, ooh, is that portable? Yeah. You know, I, and I can't find it and it annoys me. And <laughs> like I said, I, I think you might be right that we I'm just old and misremembering things. So. Could be, yeah. Yeah. That gave me... Give me a chance to take a cheap shot at you, which I appreciate it. Well, so. <laughs> at, at every opportunity. Yes, that's the role of Carrington on the show will be played by Quinn. <laughs> and Mike will still be played by Mike. <laughs> abuse and anger from everyone. That's right. Mike hates Bunch McGinnis. <laughs> um, let's see. Ian Drucker. Uh, Ian. Wow. Wow. Sorry, Ivan. <laughs> I'll, I'll just edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Ivan Drucker will, uh, ha has announced that he's updated A2 Server and A2 Cloud again uh, with more juicy, delicious updates for those products. If you use a Raspberry Pi and his uh, his cloud server product for your Apple IIc or your, or your other Apple IIs, uh, the details are on A2 Central. We'll have the um, uh, links in the show notes. I don't think there was anything earth-shaking, but you know, it's always good to have have um, product iterations where things are improving and getting easier to use. So. Yeah, and despite what Carrington thinks, those products are in fact quite easy to understand and use. Carrington's a jerk. He is. And speaking of Carrington, it looks like you have uh, you have one-upped his build pipeline. Yes, I did. Yeah, this is uh, we got all kinds of shots at Carrington here in this episode. Um, <laughs> That's right. So uh, yeah, so uh, for anyone who doesn't know it, uh, at Kansas Fest uh, 2014, uh, Carrington Vanston gave a uh, a great session on how to get started cross development for uh, the Apple II using Mac OS X. That's, um, again, going back to, you know, Dagan's videos and similar things, uh, there's this sort of, uh, sort of barrier to entry for anyone who's interested in programming these machines. And ironically, what made the machines great in the day was how low the barrier to entry was for programming. You could literally turn the machine on and it would beep at you and you could type 10 print hello and it would print hello. And I mean, that the barrier to entry for programming has never been so low since. So, and nowadays it's incredibly high. You have to install 68 gigabytes of tools to even, you know, write a line of code on anything modern. So uh, we have all these powerful tools for cross-platform development uh, on the Apple II now, but the barrier entry has you know risen to near modern levels because you have to do a bunch of stuff to get it up and running but it's worth climbing that learning curve because once you have the step up 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 and running it's this incredible force multiplier you know your your iteration time you know i'm working on a project right now and my iteration time is seconds uh on testing builds so the power of that when you can you know iterate that quickly is just amazing your efficiency uh, and your productivity goes up so high uh, and so for anyone who remembers programming on the apple II, you <laughs> you do a lot of rebooting and uh <laughs> so the iteration time was was not great and that really slows you down especially if you're learning you know if you're rusty in 6502 like i am or if you're 
uh, new to some of the gorier details of the platform, like like I am, you know, you're going to make all the rookie mistakes. You're going to write over the screen holes, and you're you know you're going to mix up your BMIs and your BPLs and your BCSs and your BCCs, and so that's a lot of bees. Yeah, there's a lot of bees. Yeah, the the the, the branches, the 6502 branches, uh, branch <laughs> instructions are uh, the ones that you want aren't quite there, and all the ones that are there you can use for what you actually want, but it, it has to be very done very sort of cleverly. So, uh, yeah, like you know, the branch on carry set is sort of like greater than or equal in some cases, depending on if the numbers are signed or unsigned and depending on what's in the registers and yada, yada. So there's a, <laughs> a lot of rookie mistakes to make there. So anything that improves uh, your iteration time on, uh, on building code is huge. So point of all of that was that I'm better than Carrington because I took his process and I made it into a one-click process. So, uh, no, to <laughs> credit where it's due, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here because Carrington's process made mine uh, possible. Uh, so I took what he had done and basically added Xcode, the standard Mac OS X development environment on top of that. So you can sort of develop your code and, you know, a nice modern IDE with code completion and search, find and replace and uh, uh, multiple panes and all the good stuff that we like in modern editors and uh, connected it to Xcode's build pipeline so that you can just hit a key and it will build your code and build a disk image and install the disk image into the drive on Virtual 2 and reboot Virtual 2 or reset it depending and uh, load your code into a specific place in memory on the Apple II and launch your code. So it does all this stuff with one key. And uh, it does it all very quickly, of course, because it's all uh, emulated. And uh, so the uh, process feels very modern. You write some code, you hit a key, and it builds and runs, and you see the result, and you uh, make some changes, and you hit a key, and it builds and runs, and you see your results. So... Uh, again, hopefully, hopefully I can help sort of lower that barrier to entry for anyone who might have a passing interest in uh, developing code for these machines. So I wrote all that up in a snarky blog post, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. It's four keys better than Carrington. It is. It is four keys better. That's 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 my my that's that's what I'm most proud of. Really, is is <laughs> is that 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 it's you know your crowning achievement. Yeah, it is four hundred percent better. I like to think. Uh, you know, for, <laughs> for, if, we, if we were to measure it on an objective scale, I think that's fair. For those of you who weren't at uh, Kansas Fest, uh, Carrington gave a session where you could do all of these things and you could do it in in five keystrokes, and it was right. a, a dynamic, fun, and interesting session that that Quinn just had to go out and squash. Yeah. It's what I do, crushing the hopes and dreams of others since 1979. <laughs> uh, well, 70, 70, something. So, uh, yeah, no, I, you know, on this subject, uh, this is sort of, we're sort of broaching. Crushing dreams. Oh, yeah, the subject of crushing dreams and, and uh, writing code. Uh, so we're sort of broaching the idea of a technical segment on Open Apple. Uh, we're not mm-hmm. sure if uh, listeners might be into that. We don't know how many programmers are out there versus, you know, users. So, if uh, if that is something you're interested in, uh, you know, drop us a line. What's our feedback email, Mike? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's a it's podcast at open apple.net, or you can tweet at us. That works too. I'm at uh, at sixty five zero two lane. And Quinn, are you on Twitter? I'm not on Twitter now. Right, okay, so you can tweet at me, and then you can tweet why you don't like me there too. Yes, we've discussed. Well, Ken and I had previously discussed on Open Apple possibly doing a tech segment and we we couldn't figure out how to do it in a way that would be 
useful to people who wanted to learn kind of the, the deeper level tech stuff that, that we would want to present while at the same time not boring to death the people who the other people who are listening because can't imagine anything worse than me sitting here reading lines of code to you. So if you have interesting or creative ideas in, in ways that we could we could present this information to the listeners, we, we'd love to hear those as well. For sure, yeah. The, yeah, the real challenge, the, there may well be interesting out there in, a, in more technical content, but the real challenge, of course, is presenting it in an audio format. That's... Uh that's very difficult, I think, for for code. So uh, you know, we'll we'll throw some ideas around and let us uh, let us know what uh, what you all think on the subject. Yeah, and uh, speaking of new segments, we've also uh, talked about uh, doing a little bit more on gaming here on the show. Return to gaming. Yeah, so uh, you know, it's something that uh, has not been around much, but. Uh, Seems like uh, something we should be talking about just because it's, if we're being honest, probably most of what most people use the Apple II for, both then and now. Uh, but we're not going to, you know, we don't want to just sit here and talk about Choplifter and Loadrunner. I mean, whatever. We all know those to death. So uh, we're more interested in possibly some of the more obscure titles or some of the weirder titles. The The platform was so huge and so popular that... Uh, you know, back back in the day, it was it was the default platform uh, that it and the Commodore sixty four for games. So you know, if a company was going to sit down and 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 uh, write a game, it was guaranteed to be targeted for certain, definitely the Commodore sixty four and probably the Apple II, and and a lot of stuff was uh, written on the Apple II and then ported to other platforms just because uh, you know the development environment was so much friendlier. If you were a small developer who couldn't afford your own deck mini computer in the closet. Uh, then the Apple II, you know, with its vastly superior disk drives and mini assembler and, and uh, built-in debugging tools and so on, was such a, a better choice than than the uh, the other machines. So, point of all that is that there's a, a lot of really obscure, weird stuff that got written uh, nowadays. A bit like the modern equivalent of digging through the dregs of the uh, App Store on your <laughs> iPhone. You know, there's you know 900,000 titles, and there, there's a lot more than than Flappy Bird and Candy Crush out there. There's some very weird stuff if you start digging. So uh, it'd be fun to do that that same thing for the Apple II. So uh, sort of kick off that segment, uh, I have what I like to call my spite item for the show. Uh, yeah, my superpower is, in fact, spite, for those of you following along at home. And angry sarcasm. Yes, well, and ang- ang- angry sarcasm. I am the chief sarcasm officer of my company. Mm-hmm. Of course. Uh, I tried to hire someone for the position, but you want something done right, you, you really got to do it yourself. So, <laughs> yeah, I took on that that role myself. So, uh, so over on, uh, on that other show that uh, you and Carrington do called No Quarter, Mm-hmm. Uh, which, for any of our listeners who don't know, is uh, all about classic arcade games, and uh, it is a great show. You should listen. Uh, you guys talked about Karate Champ, and uh, you managed to get through an entire show about Karate Champ, which is a great arcade game without ever mentioning the amazing port of Karate Champ to the Apple IIGS. And uh, it was called Sensei, and uh, it is just fantastic. It's probably t- the top um, top five best games on the platform. Really well done, and uh, we'll have links to video of gameplay of that, and uh, links to information about it on one of my favorite websites, what is the Apple II GS, uh, which the complete URL for that is, is long, but we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. And I'm, I'm all the GS listeners in our audience know that site for sure. But uh, so, uh, yeah, so Sensei, uh, what I like about this game is in addition to just being a great game, it's, it's a great example of one of the sort of main categories of GS software. GS software 
uh, was sort of uh, broken down into three categories. There's a lot of interesting depth there for such a short-lived platform. At the bottom were the crappy ports, right? There was all kinds of uh, crappy ports from other platforms and from 8-bit stuff where they just kind of threw it on the GS and, and it's like, well, okay, it's the Apple II, but without the annoying color fringe. Uh, so, sorry, the characteristic uh, nostalgic color fringe that we all see, <laughs> that we're all supposed to officially love. Um, it drove me crazy. Nice. Uh, but uh, yeah, so there, there was tons and tons of that kind of shovelware port stuff. And then there was the middle ground of companies that were, you know, making a decent effort to, to program for the GS and made some decent looking stuff, uh, the Cinemaware games and uh, some of those types of things. The, of course, the issue with the GS is that it's capable of just a whole other level of performance uh, above that, above just showing nice pictures with lots of colors at kind of a crappy frame rate. But to get that extra level of performance out of it, you really have to do some technical uh, acrobatics. So, and there were very few commercial software companies that were willing to commit to that depth on the platform, either because they didn't have the technical know-how on their staff or because it just wasn't worth the effort. I mean, if you're doing that, you know, the Cinemaware people, for example, they were porting games to Amiga or they were writing games on the Amiga and porting them. So they weren't going to write all the special code for the GS to make it a little bit better. So there was not very many companies that were willing to to go that deep on a single platform uh, as obscure as the GS. But one of those companies was uh, a group called Toolbox. And uh, there was, of course, uh, FTA, who did, made some sort of forays into shareware games as well. And uh, a couple of other company names that are escaping me. But uh, the bottom line is if you sort of trace the genealogy of all these companies and demo groups and shareware companies, it's kind of the same 10 people. <laughs> and they just sort of, they moved around and they formed different groups. And But this knowledge was sort of so specialized of how to get real performance, uh, graphics performance, especially out, out of the GS, that there were very few people that knew how to do it. So... But, you know, as evidenced by games like Sensei, the, the results are definitely impressive. You know, you've got great full screen, you know, uh, animation effects and great big sprites moving around and, you know, great frame rates. Uh, so, you know, there's other sort of games in the same category would be things like, uh, the, uh, the Gate game also by Toolbox. Uh, there was a demo of a game called Time Lord that never came out, but, Time Lord and Gate both had these, you know, huge full screen, you know, smooth scrolling tile maps that were just amazing, all without any kind of hardware acceleration. So that, this was sort of that other level of, of software for the GS. And it was just so tantalizingly little of it. And it all came along right at the end of the platform, kind of in the early 90s, you know, some of it as late as, you know, 95. If you want to sort of see what the platform really was capable of. Uh, Sensei is a, a good place to start. The only thing I would say about it is the collision detection is a little off in the gameplay video that we're going to link to. The guy, kind of, the player doesn't really know what he's doing. He sort of gets the hang of it at one point, but so don't judge the gameplay by what you see in the video. Uh, it's uh, The music is fantastic. Some of the artwork is uh, it's a little hit and miss. You know, I think the team at the time, maybe they didn't have the uh, the art resources that one might have liked, but uh, it's uh, a technical tour de force for sure. It's, it's a fantastic looking and playing game. So that is uh, sort of hopefully an intro to uh, our new gaming segment. And again, if you if this is something you guys want to hear more of, uh, let us know at podcast at open-apple.net. And shame on Carrington, 
for refusing to talk about that during mm-hmm. during the Open Apple episode, even or during the No Quarter episode, even though I insisted that we talk about that's it. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's I, what, I knew I knew you would have yes because because he's not here to say otherwise. Yes, and I even said. After you know, after <laughs> the show was recorded, granted, but I even said you guys better talk about this on your show. As unreasonable as that demand is going to make, I am still going to make it. So all Carrington's fault. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. But and I I threatened. I said, well, you know, you guys didn't talk about it, and I've got half of my own show now, so I might just <laughs> talk about it on this show out of spite. And here we are in the spite segment, the the spiteful game segment. So I, I did a lot of um, I did a lot of reading about Sensei after I was roundly chided in the email mm, yes. um, by a certain podcast co-host. Mm. Uh, and you it, like it to looks chide? like uh, one of the things that, that uh, really seems to stand out in, in the older reviews and even today was was how great the sound is mm. in, in Sensei. Yeah. And we talked in a previous episode about getting a hold of one of the, um, the stereo cards, if you can, mm-hmm. for the Apple mm-hmm. 2GS. Um, to kind of return 2GS's audio to its two-channel glory instead of the mono that currently comes out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if you if you were looking for an excuse to buy uh, to buy one of those cards, this game is should give you all the reason in the world. Because I, I downloaded the uh, the disc image and, and played it on my my real 2GS, and this thing it just sounds amazing. So definitely worth checking out. It really does. I used to just boot it up and leave it on the title screen because that yeah. opening sequence yep, could... <laughs> is amazeballs. And yep. yeah, one of, one of the things I love about the GS is that every decent game had full stereo sound. And even though the machine didn't support it out of the box, and there was certainly add-on cards that unlock that that feature of the machine, but all this software was written for a feature that doesn't exist uh, on the original machine and that never happens you know anytime a machine or a game console or anything has some accessory that they hope lots of people will buy none of the games support it it's the chicken and egg problem right none of the games support it because well nobody's going to buy this thing or nobody nobody has this thing and nobody buys this thing because there's no software that supports it so this is this is an anomaly if you'd be hard pressed to find gs software that does not support stereo so you know if you have a gs and you don't have a stereo card in it you are missing out if you, if you missed out, I don't know if he's still selling the TDX stereo card that he made. Um, if he's not, you can still find him on eBay now and then for fairly cheap. Definitely worth it. Yes, my GS has a uh, the Sonic Blaster in it, and it is awesome. I am so jealous. And I got it cranked up. I got four <laughs> speakers, great big old-fashioned wood green speakers hooked up to it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, when when we're doing the gaming thing in the future, um, for for listeners who are looking to contribute, you know, it doesn't just have to be a, a title suggestion. You know, if you have a, a great story about your Apple Two GS gaming experience or something um, that, that you just want us to talk about on the Two C uh, regarding a game you like, let us know and, and we'll see if we can work that into the show too. For sure, yeah. But we will not be giving anything away like we used to, just just so yeah. so that because I'm sure that question will come up. Yes, and I, I will run out of items created specifically to spike Carrington, so uh, we're gonna <laughs> we, we are gonna need other suggestions for titles as well. So if you Absolutely. if you have favorite stuff that nobody else seems to have heard of that was your favorite game, you know, feel free send it on over. We'll we'll talk about it. If you're looking for that that old school dial up uh, BBS experience, and I'm not talking about just the Telnet version of it, although you can do that too. Uh, Level 29 BBS is now a, a bulletin board system that you can actually dial into uh, on your on your modem. If you stop by bbs.4 
Foz Text. That's with two Z's and two X's dot com. Uh, you can learn all about it. And if you don't have your old modem anymore, it doesn't work, or you've long since disconnected your uh, your um, landline, uh, you can still Telnet in as well. Yeah, this this is fun. I uh, I signed into it, and I had uh, I was immediately told that it was busy, and I should try again later. <laughs> and I retried for several minutes, and never got in. And it was exactly like uh, a BBS in that way. It was it, right. it was great. <laughs> I remember many hours with the auto redialer. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, back then you 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 know you had your your list of the favorite BBSs that you could call around to. And if one was busy, you could call another and hope you could, you know, get back to the one you missed. Uh, I think this is probably a pretty unique experience these days. Um, you can dial in at uh, 300, 1200 or 2400 BPS, so blazing speed there. Yeah. The, the phone number is a uh, 415-672-1024. And these days, um, long distance is, is a far cry from what it used to be. You know, if, if you didn't live in San Francisco, uh, back then, you either had to um, obtain uh, some a free way to to call them, uh, <laughs> to to call long distance, or or you know, or you were stuck dialing locally. So, but these days, I, I think most most calling plans include free or very very inexpensive long distance calling. Um, and if you don't want to call in, you can tell that right in. Just tell them to bbs.foztex.com, uh, port ninety six hundred. Yeah, long-distance BBSing back in the day was much like getting married. You needed something old and something new and something <laughs> borrowed and, oh, yes, something blue. Something blue. Mm, yes. Yeah, I, I was uh, in Canada at the time in a, a, a small city, and uh, there was really only, you know, one or, or two BBSs that you could you could dial into, and so there was really no choice but to sit there dialing hours and hours at a time because there was, you know, thousands of Apple II users who all wanted to get into that same BBS. So uh, there was no other way. But uh, And there were, uh, we used to have, uh, there was some subscription uh, services that people would set up where we would all pitch into a fund to pay the long distance bills to dial American BBSs uh, uh-huh. because that's where all the, the good stuff was, so to speak. And uh, so we would, uh, we would sort of, we would join these kind of collectives, if you will, where we would all pitch in and then someone would, dial into an American BBS and spend all of our money on long distance, you know, downloading all of the, whether it was the FidoNet feeds or or the Usenet groups or the, shall we say, shareware and freeware software uh, that was all legally obtained uh, from those services mm-hmm, sure and uh, would sort of burn through the, 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 the pot of money that we'd all contributed and then distribute it uh, locally uh, back up in our little city in, in Canada. So it was it was a, a good system, but yeah, uh, you definitely needed patience in those days. I mean, hours of redialing to get in, and then if you wanted to download anything, it was more hours, and just even browsing through you know, the message ports was so slow, and <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's easy to forget how patient you had to be to be a BBSer. It seems almost incomprehensible today, but it wasn't so long ago that most of these BBSs were, you know, it's just a computer in some guy's house, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. he, he, he might have two lines, if you were lucky, one that he could call out on, you know, or and, and one that you could call into on the bulletin board system. And, and, and if the lady down the street was dialed in, you had to wait until she was done. And, and then you had to get, you know, kind of lucky enough to, to be next in line to, to happen to call in. Yeah. And um, you know, some people got smart about it, and they would go out and they'd buy these auto dial things that would just keep trying the numbers over and over again. Or you'd have the software, which I think was a little bit slower if you did it that way. And uh, they, those people were really unfair. You know, <laughs> they would just kind of jump right to the head of the line there. Yeah. But um, it wasn't until like the larger kind of dial-up services like CompuServe and the Source and 
uh, things like that. And the ones that came before, you know, you used uh, Mustang multi-line software and stuff, and they would go out and they'd buy banks of phone lines. And those were, you know, subscription services, and they had to be because they couldn't afford all those phone lines on their own. Um, you, if you didn't want to buy into that, you were stuck kind of dialing around and hoping that you, you got a free line. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, now that we have all this historical information about BBSs online, it's, it's awesome to, to look at the pictures of people's BBS setups. Uh, you know, I love that about Jason Scott's documentary and, and, uh, yeah. places like, like level 29, cause they have, he has photos of his setup and stuff that, uh, you know, at the time, I think I first was on BBSs. I think I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old or something. And, you know, they were just sort of these mystical, far off things that you were dialing into and you imagined, you know, war games-esque fancy machines with blinking lights and clean rooms and whatever and all this magical software being served. And yeah, no, it was just, they were all someone's desk in the corner of their bedroom piled up with dusty scungy old equipment and cables hanging from the ceiling and stealing power from the neighbor's outlet next door and just just you know they were just always these sad looking but much loved uh yeah sad's the wrong word more like uh lovingly jury-rigged let's say setups um (laughs) Of, uh, of of mismatched gear and whatever could be scrounged up. It's amazing how little you know money these systems were run on and how how influential they were. They definitely punched above their weight class as far as you know the the amount of hardware and the money that was in them and compared to the cultural impact that they had you know on all of us. And now you can relive those days of, of dialing and getting a busy signal over and over again. That's with right. The level twenty nine BBS. That's right. Yes, you too can. <laughs> Experience the joy of the auto redialer That's for right. six hours. Oof. And uh, I guess we can can wrap it up with a, a bit of gaming news since we talked about that segment a little while ago. This is uh, less specific to the Apple II. Um, but, uh, well, Quinn, you put this on the spreadsheet, so you talk about it. Yeah, actually, I don't think I did, but I'll talk about it anyway. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Activision ha- has been making noise that they're bringing back the uh, Sierra brand, uh, or Sierra Online, as some of us knew it, or Online Systems, as some of us knew it, uh, in its various incarnations. Um, so, yeah, they're being a little, uh, as of this broadcast, they're being a little uh, cagey still about what exactly that means. Uh most likely it's just sort of in the Atari sense of it, the brand, uh, someone, you know, they're just going to slap it on some software and see what happens. I would not expect a reimagining of, uh, you know, of, of great old hits or anything like that, but, uh, uh, it's, it's still neat to see the, the pedigree. Uh, hopefully they'll, uh, bring back the logo and we'll see it on something. I think it's obviously going to be, you know, PC only, but, uh, you know, it's tangentially related. So we're talking about it. And I, I think that uh, pretty much brings us to the end of the new segment. And um, let's get into the interview. Hi, this is Steve Wozniak, and you're listening to Open Apple. Okay, so this month on uh, Open Apple, we have a special guest interview. Um, the name Gary B. Little probably means a lot to Apple II fans out there. Um, if you don't know him from from uh, his extensive book collection, then you might know him from his days at uh, as editor and author at A+. He worked at Apple for a number of years, and he's here to talk to us today. Hello, Gary. Well, hello there. How are you guys doing? Uh, doing well, thank you. Quinn, I'm sure you have a question for Gary. 
Yeah, yeah. So Gary, um, I guess the first question people always want to ask is, is why did you buy an Apple II? You know, back in those days, there was all manner of choices. There was Ataris and Commodores and PCs, oh my. So uh, what was it that, that brought you to the Apple II? Wow, what a great question. Well, this was 1978, so I just completed a master's degree in chemistry, of all things. And uh, that got me into computing, believe it or not. At the University of BC, they had an IBM 370 mainframe, and we had to do a lot of numerical analysis. So I uh, basically really got into computer programming through that. And I uh, ended up rewriting a lot of the, the libraries that we used, etc. Personal computers had just come out. So I went shopping, and uh, my brother, who was an electrical engineer at the time, uh, you know, I asked his advice, and uh, you know, we sort of sat down and talked about the various options. And I think I picked the Apple II because, uh, first of all, it was expandable. I figured, well, maybe I'll use this one slot, maybe. And uh, it was in color, and it was, uh, you know, price was high. <laughs> but what else is new? And uh, anyway, any event, I ended up buying the Apple II and didn't really regret it uh, at all. I think the other option at the time was the CompuColor. I, I remember looking at it. I didn't buy it, obviously, but uh, I don't think it, they lasted very long. So it was nice to pick a winner. Yeah, no argument here. So uh, so most of our listeners probably know you from your books, Inside the Apple IIe and Inside the Apple IIc. And in fact, I actually literally just finished reading Inside the Apple IIc. I'm starting a programming project on the 2C, and uh, so I've been reading various books, and, and yours was, was on the list. Uh, what prompted you to write those? Well, I don't know. I just started, uh, I was really into the Apple II right away. I mean, I sort of rolled up my shirt sleeves and, and started uh, learning how to program it, because uh, I never had a formal class in programming ever. Everything I've done is based on self-education. Uh, so... You know, I started writing little articles for magazines. I think my first article appeared in Micro. Do you remember Micro, the 6502 journal? Mm-hmm, yeah. And uh, my first article there, I think, appeared in 1983 or something, <laughs> you know, a long time ago. And they actually paid me for it. I mean, that was, wow, I got $50 or something. And I went, hmm, maybe I can make a little money here. So I ended up writing a few articles here and there for various magazines, uh, including Micro and, and I think Soft Talk, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I mean, there's three or four that I wrote for. And then I said to myself, well, gee, maybe I could write a book. And at the time, Peter Norton uh, was pretty famous. He'd written a book called Inside the IBM PC. So that's just the background at the time. So anyway, I, mean, I pitched a book idea to several book publishers just on, you know, using the Apple II and how to expand it using the game port and things like that. One publisher came back to me. It was Brady Books, division of Prentice Hall, I think. <laughs> the book editor, God bless me, says, well, why don't you come down to San Francisco and we can talk about it? Well, of course, he's pan, so I went great, I'll be there. I've never been. So I flew to San Francisco, stayed there for a couple of days. And uh, the editor, Chris Williams is his name, by the way, he took me to the top of the Mark Hopkins. It's right at the top of Knob Hill in San Francisco and like fantastic view. He was just buttering me up, obviously. And, you know, they were the publishers of, of the, the Norton book inside the IBM PC, which is a huge seller for them. And so he said, oh, forget the book proposal you made, Gary. We'd love you to write the book called Inside the Apple IIe. That would be a great compliment to the uh, Inside series that they thought they had going here. So, so that's what I did. I, I uh, signed uh, that deal on the spot that day on uh, the top of the Mark Hopkins in San Francisco. 
the big surprise that day was he says, well, you tell you what, we'll do your book too. That, so we'll do a two book deal today. And so I ended up, I walked, I went home, flew home back to Vancouver at the time with a two book deal in my pocket with a nice advance and uh, off I went. And I'd never written a book before, so that was, of course, the challenging part. <laughs> but They don't need to know that, right? <laughs> well, they probably did know it, but in any event, that's how I ended up writing uh, Inside the Apple IIe. And the funny story is that I think I ended up writing six books, but I never wrote that one that I'd proposed. The, the ver- <laughs> it never happened. I wrote Inside the Apple IIe, and then the Apple IIc came out, and so I wrote that one, which was very similar to the first book which looks like you've been reading recently. And then I wrote a book on uh, Prodos. And yeah, I wish I had my list with me, but I, I wrote a few, couple of books on the Mac as well. But I never ended up writing that very first book. So what I really liked about Inside the 2C is that it, I mean, I read it and I read the Apple's, you know, technical, uh, Apple 2C technical reference manual back to back. What I like about your book is that it's basically the same information, but sort of written by a normal human being. So it's a lot easier to absorb. Was that intentional? I mean, did you want it to have a similar sort of degree of content or structure? How did you approach the kind of the structure of the book? Basically, yeah, it was meant to be very usable and uh, informal, so to speak, although I'm very detail-oriented. So anything in that book should be right. But I wrote it in a, in a friendlier style, I hope, and, and you know, just sort of laid it out so that uh, the information was there for anyone to easily find and enjoy, and, and, and including myself, to be able to uh, quickly find stuff. So that's always been my approach. I still do a little writing, nothing on computing lately, but uh, that's my style. I mean, make things more approachable, um, you know, make it fun to read, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, and well, and there's still great resources today, as 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 you've uh, heard that uh, people are still actively developing software. In fact, it's on a bit of an upswing at the moment. Uh, so it's great to sort of still have those books. So, <laughs> you know, 20 years or plus later, are there any sort of uh, erratas that you have that you know of for those books, or <laughs> there you know things you'd want to say to to modern readers who might be trying to use them today to develop for the Apple II? They're perfect. There's no errors in any <laughs> either book. <laughs> if I had an errata, I'd give it to you. I, I, there probably are a few glitches here and there, but uh, it was more like 30 years ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> Give or take. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there's probably a few little gotchas here and there, but probably not too many. I was, again, I was pretty meticulous uh, way back then. Even now, I'm infamous. People know me because I'm always looking for typos on street signs and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's just one of my uh, little things. Yeah, no, I, I had really I had no idea that there was so much uh, activity in the Apple II area still. Although just a few weeks ago, somebody sent me the entire source code for ProDOS and DOS 3.3 and I think Sauce, you know, official Apple source code listings. I have no idea where they came from, but uh, somebody had them. And so I've uh, put them into my archive. God knows why, but I've got them. I, at the time, of course, you guys probably did this. Bob Sander Cedarloff was the guy to go to to get source code listings for uh, these things. He made a bit of a career out of publishing them in a serialized manner over several months. I think it was the entire source code for DOS 3.3 as he disassembled it and annotated it. Pretty amazing stuff. And yeah, thank God for that because I was able to write, uh, let me think about this for a minute. Well, he must have done ProDOS as well because I, I think I used his information to help find places to put my code for this thing called AmDOS, which was something I wrote. It allows you to use 
AMDOS stands for Amateur Disk Operating System, and it was the uh, gave you the ability to run DOS 3.3 on a three and a half inch floppy disk. Before we move on, I, I've got uh, Amazon actually has a, a list of the of all your all, all the titles that you published over the years, and uh, the other one that that I see coming coming up a lot, and in, in, I guess you'd call it the hobbyist community these days, would be uh, exploring the Apple II GS. Uh, so it, oh, yeah. it looks like you were with the the Apple II kind of all the way through the entire line because you know obviously the 2GS and the 2C Plus were the last ones ones made. Yeah, and I wrote a book on GSOS too. I, yeah, that was yep. exploring yeah, Apple a, GSOS and ProDOS eight. Right. Yeah. So those those two were uh, just I you know I moved to California in 1987. I think those books must have come out right around that time. So I think I was just finishing those up as I was either going to California or just in California. But, and then I, you know, I joined Apple in 88 and I think the Apple II lasted for another, probably four years, maybe. Uh, You guys probably know better than I when it stopped manufacturing, but it was probably early 90s sometime. By that time, I was sort of focusing or getting into the Macintosh more and I wrote a couple of books, or yeah, two books on the Macintosh. Uh, early on the assembly, I, I know that you also published. You also had published in uh, A Plus Magazine a couple of articles, and then as I was reading about that, I came across that you were actually the editor there for a while. <laughs> well, that's how that's how I ended up in California to begin with. Uh, so the story is, when my Prodos book came out, which was the third book, I guess. You know, I started thinking, well, I should get it serialized. You know, make some money here, and so I pitched it to the usual suspects. Uh, probably Insider and, and A+. Plus. Anyway, A+, plus, Fred Davis at A+, plus liked the uh, idea. And so A+, plus started uh, serializing that book. So I probably had three articles about Protoss in A+, plus, and then they liked my writing, and so they ended up starting to just feed me all sorts of story ideas. And I ended up writing many, many cover stories for them on you know reviews of software or hardware or whatever. I was just happening quite a name for myself. And then when they had a need for a technical editor... They gave me a call and they said, yeah, I think we could convince you to move to California. And I said, oh, I don't know. That might be difficult. Oh, well, you know, we'll pay for all the moving expenses. And I went, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up moving to California to, to be the technical editor at A+. And I, I, you know, it's kind of awkward, but I was only there for a year or just less than a year. And then Apple came knocking on the door. At the time, Apple was really hiring a lot of editor types, uh, not necessarily for editing jobs at Apple, but they hired Dave Zatella, and they hired myself and Ron Lichty and Dave Eyes and you know all these people that have written books or were were magazine people. Lisa Raleigh, who worked with me at A Plus, she was hired as well. It was quite an era at the time. You know, this is like '88. That's how I ended up at Apple. So well, and when Apple's on the line, you always take the call, right? Well, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> not going to turn that down. <laughs> no, I guess not. Yeah, worked out pretty well. So were you uh, at A-plus during the merger with Insider, or was that after your time? That was after my time. So I left in, you know, June 88, I think it was, or May. And uh, I think the Insider, it must have been the next year, something like that. But, you know, the slippery slope had begun, of course, for the Apple II uh, in terms of, you know, the big-time magazines. Uh, we had a circulation of over 100,000, but I'm not sh- it was declining, I guess, starting in 89 or so. So Insider, you know, merged, and then ultimately that basically all fell apart at some point. And that's sort of the timeline there. 
I still have the old copies of A plus that I edited. Now you were at uh, Apple, you said for for ten years. That's uh, that's that's quite a long time. Um, what what kind of things did they have you doing there? Well, I actually ended up working with David Eisen, Ron Lichty, and others in the uh, development tools product marketing group. So we were responsible for. Uh, making sure that there was an adequate supply of development tools for both the Apple II and the Macintosh. And so I was sort of, uh, I did a variety of things, but one of the things I did was uh, sort of be the uh, evangelist for getting third parties to write, you know, compilers and debuggers and that sort of thing. You know, there's some Apple II-related stuff, but a lot of Macintosh stuff, uh, obviously. I worked with the Fortran guys and the COBOL guys and and the Assembler guys and, uh, you know, Steve Jassick's debugger, you know, that kind of thing. I did that for a while. And, you know, I did other things there, too. I was, heck, I was the product manager for Mac App for a brief time. Um, and also I was the Java product manager for a year or so. So I ended up, I stayed in the uh, development tools group for the basically the entire 10 years, even though it may not have been called that formally, but it was it was that kind of job. And about 98, or sorry, 10 years later, 98, yes. Apple was on the ropes, as you guys know. I was a, I was a, non-green card, no, hang on, I had a visa to work in the U.S. I was very concerned anyway that Apple went through hiring stages, but also layoff stages, and I was very concerned that if I ever got into the layoff stage, I might have to come back to Canada on, on somebody else's schedule, and I uh, didn't really want to do that, so I, uh, so I was a little bit concerned, so I ended up, when I got a job offer from another company, which turned out to be Sun Microsystems, I decided to take it. Uh, I just didn't know, it was too uncertain. For the family, you know, uh, so I sort of regret I didn't s- stick it out longer at Apple. I could have, I'm sure, in retrospect, but uh, at the time it seemed like a pretty good idea. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think you missed much there. Those were, uh, those were the dark years for for Apple when they were making uh, performas and Lord knows what else. Yeah, and, uh, I definitely, uh, definitely sympathize <laughs> as a Canadian working in the U.S. having that H one B axe yeah, hanging over your H-1B. head. Yeah, the H one B. Yeah, exactly. Well, I did get my green card eventually, so that was nice. But anyway, that's a completely different topic, which we'd best not get into. <laughs> now, in addition to all the the writing that you've done with the, the books and the magazine and articles, there's there's also a few very interesting pieces of, of software. And and I guess we, I'd, I'd like to start with Binary Two. How did that come about? Well, you know, I was, I was, I'm really still intrigued by data communications and so on. And I got into computer bulletin boards early on, and you know, I wrote, uh, I wrote this software called Moda Magic or Moda Magician that was published by Call Apple in Seattle and and others. Pinpoint Publishing picked up a version of it too, and it was all about you know talking to community bulletin board systems and transferring files back and forth. And of course, just like on the on the Macintosh, the problem was that. Uh, wasn't just the data for the, that was in the file that was important. It was you know some other attributes, and unless you had those other attributes to go with the data, you sort of lost the context for the file, and it was difficult to use it at the other end. So, on the Macintosh side, someone had created something called, uh, I guess it was called Mac Binary, and uh, that solved the problem there. And so I felt that obviously we needed something similar for the Apple II, particularly when ProDOS came out, and. I created the thing called Mac Binary, or, or sorry, <laughs> Mac Binary, Binary 2, which was basically Mac Binary for the Apple II, and it allowed you to do the same thing, basically transfer a uh, any type of file from one, one Apple II to another, and uh, you know, you could use it at the other end just as if it were, uh, uh, you installed it from, you know, the floppy disk that you bought it from. 
so I wrote it up, and Apple turned it into a, an official tech note. Uh, and I guess it was used by most of uh, the data communication software of the day, um, not just my own, but others. And uh, yeah, it worked out pretty well, solved a real problem of the day. It did indeed. Uh, in fact, I noticed uh, in addition to that tech note, it looks like it was blessed with an official Protoss file type. Uh, did, how did that come about? Did they just, did Apple call you up one day and say, hey, we want to make this official or? Well, you know what? I think at the time uh, when it, they actually turned it into a tech note, I actually worked at Apple. So it was, uh, I did all the work before I came to Apple and then that was all done afterwards. And I happen to know the guys that wrote the tech note. So I probably uh, had a little influence on them to, to, to do that. <laughs> and I think Matt Deathers wrote the, uh, wrote the tech note, as I recall. So yeah, yeah, it was kind of nice uh, to get an official file type code for it, for sure. This is obviously going back 30 years, so maybe it's faded a little bit, but do you remember any sort of programming challenges that, that you kind of run into when you're trying to come up with a solution to a problem like that? Or is it just a breeze that you wrote in an afternoon? <laughs> no, no. It's hard. <laughs> Everything's hard. Um, well, especially for me, I'm very finicky. And, you know, even today when I'm writing software, because I write a lot of software now, just I wouldn't say it's for fun, but I, you know, I'm kind of into the into Google Maps, so I'm writing a lot of PHP and and uh, JavaScript to you know overlay Google Maps, and you know you're always running into all sorts of programming issues or problems, or you don't fully understand what's going on, and so you've got to sort of understand that first before you can solve the problem. And I'm that sort of is not never ending. In the old days of the Apple II, I mean, you had to understand the system first. Thank God we had the Red Book, uh, which had the the source listing and the ROM or part of it. Uh, that helped a lot. And then you had to find places to put the software. So you, page three was the favorite spot, but there was only probably 200 bytes to work with there. So you had to get really good at compressing code. Mm -hmm. so you, <laughs> and so, yeah, you'd be working on that too. And uh, yeah, there's all, all sorts of problems. I remember when I got into communication software, oh my God, the timing issues were, were horrible. Uh, you know, if you sent a pause key to a to a Hayes microphone, it would take them take it three seconds to react to it. You had to have code. I I called the code the straggler code. So even if you sent the pause command, you still had to sort of loop for a while to make sure you picked up two or three stragglers that were coming coming over the line, and so you didn't miss them. Yeah, there's always something you were learning, and uh, it was a challenge all the time. I did a lot of soft. I wrote a lot of different kind of software, and all had its little. Little problems here and there, but uh, I think I sorted out most of the problems. Is this what led you to point-to-point? To point? Yeah, I mean, point-to-point uh, point was sort of the deluxe version of all this communication software I'd written two or three years earlier. I think it was called Modem Magic, and then I licensed it to Call Apple, and they called it Modem Magician. And then uh, when Call Apple sort of faded out uh, or I got the rights back or something, you know, I kept working on the software for my own enjoyment and use. I mean, I still do that today. I decided to see if I can make get it licensed again, and, and I approached Pinpoint Publishing, who did, you guys will recall, all this cookbook software, mm -hmm. and a bunch, of, a bunch of other things, too. They were in Emeryville. We were just kicking around ideas. For, they, they, were, they were up for it, and uh, we were kicking around some ideas on the name, and uh, I don't know, we came, I think I came up with uh, Point to Point, and they loved it because it sort of fit in with their company name, Pinpoint Publishing. So it became Point to Point. They sold it for, you know, I don't know, two or three years, maybe four years. So I made a few bucks off them. And then uh, when they decided to go off on other things, um, I think, yeah, I licensed it to Beagle Brothers. Unbelievable. Everybody's favorite publisher. 
well, they were they were fun guys, and uh, anyway, that was fun too. But you know, by that time, you know, things weren't selling quite as well as they used to. So, so so that's interesting. That uh, so point to point and modem edition were sort of the same package then. So, well, they looked a lot different, but they were basically versions of one another. I mean, I kept improving it, and you know, obviously changing the interface slightly. It sort of looked had the look of. Uh, of uh, Apple Works type of thing, but yeah, I mean, it was basically the same underlying code that I kept refining and improving over the years. So. Okay, that's interesting because there, there's a there's an old uh, Call Apple article where they sort of do a head to head of various uh, modem and communication software, and they sort of compare those two ah. to each other as part of the sort of part of the, the roundup. So it's sort of is funny. That right? it's almost oh. like they yeah, it's almost <laughs> like they don't know they're the same piece of software. Well, that is or something. That's kind of odd, actually. You wouldn't have thought that they'd both be on the market at the same time. I don't recall that. But, uh, hey, who knows? They're selling old stock, maybe. I don't know. So that it must have been really challenging to write uh, communication software on a machine with no real-time clock. I mean, how did you sort of coordinate communication w- with different machines without being able to timestamp things and so on? Basically, just working through the existing modem cards, uh, the Hayes Micromodem and the... Uh, Novation Apple Cat modem and all that stuff, and uh, I mean, to a degree, it was simply you know sending data to that board, to, and it would take care of all the transmission, and I didn't have to worry so much about time and date stamps at all. So, sort of in the distant past, here I'm trying to remember uh, how I really dealt with it, but it wasn't a big issue. I mean, it was pretty simplified in those days, of course. So. Yeah, for sure. Well, and that was also the sort of the wild west of protocols. I mean, there was, no, no, yeah. you know, Apple had their own sort of faster version of, of things. And I mean, was there challenges there associated with all the different competing standards and so on before? Or was this or was yes. this after sort of when the Hayes AT command set sort of took over? Or I mean, there were boards that you put in your Apple that didn't even use the AT command set. So I was trying to support all those. As I recall, I was trying to use the chip directly to, to send da- data in and out. And I probably had a, I think I had a driver that would actually use the AT command set, but they were all slightly different, you know, it was just driving you nuts, because uh, the AT command set was extended and everybody had a slightly different version, so you sort of had to go to the lowest common denominator and just leave it at that. I tried to support everything, of course, and like I said, they were, there were non-AT modem boards that you could plug in that I, I supported them all, or I tried. Some of them I could never get to work. The 1200 bought Novation AppleCat. Talk to me some other century, and I'll tell you how to use that one. I mean, it, it, uh, by then I'll have it figured out. But no, it was really hard, and uh, I could never get it to work. But uh, I got most everything else working. I supported multiple clock boards, too, by talking right to the clock chip on these boards. So I sort of got my code written so that I could just... It's like a driver overload or overlay, and, you know, you pull out... You just had a little pace place uh, with a jump table and you just replace the code and put the jump table back and you know you'd have a new clock board supported just like that <laughs> you learn a lot those apple cat modems were a bit notorious honestly i mean they were so poorly supported because they were so difficult to support i think yeah so speaking of, of difficult challenges, uh, so you wrote uh, AmDOS, so-called amateur DOS. That's that, that's a really in- interesting thing. I mean, so for our listeners who may not be familiar with it, it uh, was a way to use the the Unidisc three and a half inch discs in DOS three point three. So aside from the sort of technical stunt impressiveness of it, uh, what uh, what prompted you to sit down and write that? It was a nice programming challenge. I got to be honest. 
man, I got that thing to fit into page three somehow and, you know, with one bite to spare. And it was a real challenge and it, and it, and it worked like a hot damn. It was great. And, uh, you know, then I sold it as shareware. Shareware was big in those days. And, man, I yeah. used to get $30 checks all the time from right around the world. It was incredible. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say I got rich off it, but it was kind of nice to get $30 U.S. checks and cash them in Canada. At the time, it was a good premium. <laughs> so, but it was fun. And, and I'll tell you, when I worked at Apple, there was a couple of people that used to contact the Apple licensing department about something similar. And they always, the legal department would always send a little note over to me saying, yeah, you, got, you might want to talk to these guys. They might, uh, they might want to license your software. I don't think it actually ever worked out, but. But still, anyways, it really started as a programming challenge, and uh, you know, I just like a challenge, and it was challenging to get all that functionality out of basically a couple hundred bytes of code. It may have been just more than page three. I may have jammed it into some other empty spot that Bob had pointed out in the uh, mainline area. But uh, I, may, I may have the source code for it somewhere. I mean, if it's on, if I do have it, it's on a three and a half inch uh, Mac disk, probably at this point. <laughs> That, that is interesting that uh, it just started as a challenge because, yeah, the, the description of it uh, almost sounds like, well, I wonder if I can make Far Cry run on a washing machine. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't sound like, to me, something that I would immediately necessarily want. It's like, well, if I'm going to use three and a half inch discs, I'll just use Protoss. But, uh, but yeah. then at the end of the day, it sounds like a lot of people, it was filling a need, right? You got a lot of people sending you checks for it. So clearly people were, were really into it. Yeah, I think DOS 3.3 lasted a long time beyond Protoss and... Uh, yeah, it was very effective, and of course, the old floppies only took what 140k, was it? So anyway, it did fill a need for sure, definitely. Yeah, that uh, yeah, that, that's it's very true. There were DOS 3.3 holdouts all the way to the end. In fact, at, at Kansas Fest, you get to talk to those people who uh, are when, in one camp or the other. Personally, I always really liked ProDOS, and as soon as it came along, I switched. But uh, yeah, there was yeah. some hardcore DOS 3.3ers to the end. How dare you! Yeah, yeah. Well, I got to admit, I was I love Protoss, but uh, I don't. I just wrote Amdos. Like I said, it was it was fun to write. Turned into a bit of a revenue generator too, which was surprising. And of course, the name. I just love the name Amdos. You know, nobody knows what it's amateur DOS disk operating system, as opposed to the professional disk operating system. <laughs> right. Hey, I just having a little fun with it. But there were others too. I mean, I wasn't the only one that had done this. Uh, I think there was a couple other people that had done something similar but i'll bet i got it in fewer bites <laughs> <laughs> Waz would be proud <laughs> yes exactly one of the things that that i've done recently that i've been doing my interest in the hobby is, has led me to do is uh, i've been doing a lot of scanning of old magazines and books and i i came across a copy of inside the apple IIe once on ebay and it was somebody wanted like 100 150 dollars for it and i said this cannot stand and so i <laughs> I, I pulled out my copy and ran it across the scanner and, and posted it and, and as i was i think just a couple of maybe a week or two ago i i saw that you had um, actually noticed that and, and i think you'd posted the cover of it on your your pinterest page and i um mm. i wasn't sure yeah. how that how that was going to go because I, i've most people are okay with it, you know, because it's 30 years ago and they're not making any money from this stuff anymore. But every now and then I'll get somebody that says, could you take that down, please? That really bothers me that you did that. So here's me officially asking for your permission to host those files that I've had up on my site for a couple of years now. 
Oh, go for it. Yeah. Right. You know what? It was funny because I, I mean, you did a lot. I mean, there's value in that work. <laughs> so I downloaded the book too. Oh, great. <laughs> so I have a, I have an offline or an online copy of it too. So that's great. Yeah. It saves me severing the binding on my copy and, uh, and uh, starting to do the PDF on it. Yeah. No, that was, uh, it was fun to sort of see it being, was done. And I think uh, you did. Did you do the other two as well, the two C? I, I think. And yeah, I did the two E book and the two C book. Uh, um, I think somebody else did the two GS book at one point. Um, I just know okay. that uh, I know that the two E book was one of the ones that, going back to to the heyday of the Apple, two was always really popular. You read about, you would read about it in magazines, and it would get great reviews, and everybody would refer to that book as as you know reference reading, and you got to get this, and so and so yeah. you know. 30 years later, it wasn't available anymore except at these crazy prices. And so um, it just felt like kind of, you know, let's let's put this out there. And, and so that's what I did. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I think I only have one copy of the real book myself. I, I had multiple copies and, you know, I schlepped them around between countries for a long time. <laughs> sure, I went, sure. who am I ever going to give these to? So um, I kept a couple maybe and uh, the rest uh, are long gone. So... Anyway, it's kind of nice to see, and just just parenthetically, it's funny. I was up on the web the other day, and hey, I found my 1977 uh, chemistry thesis online. <laughs> I couldn't believe that, so I downloaded that quickly too because uh, you know I have the printed copy, obviously, but it was again very handy to have the uh, scanned copy of the original document. So thanks for that. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I mean the community thanks you too. I mean I can attest as uh, you know as as a modern programmer who's recently gone back to the Apple II. You know I hadn't read the book back in the day, and by that point I was I was into the 2GS. Um, although I'll say that your book exploring the 2GS was actually the first third-party programming book that I ever owned, and uh, yeah. that sort of got me into programming the 2GS. Yeah, cool. So, uh, All right. uh, but so now when I wanted to go back and get back into the 8-bit stuff, you know, I picked up the, the 2C book actually from Mike's site, and uh, Yay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I certainly would have uh, paid cash money for it if there was any way to do so uh, these <laughs> days, but... Uh, uh, but yeah, and it, honestly, it's just as good now as it, as it was then, sort of as a way to, if someone wants to start programming the Apple II and doesn't know where to start, uh, which is basically where I was, uh, you know, that's a book you can pick up and read. And uh, assuming, you know, you have some basic assembly language knowledge. Uh, of course, it's, yeah. It's sort of a, a great sort of way to figure out, you know, okay, well, how do I get characters on the screen? And, you know, how do I, where, where does Prodos load itself into? And, you know, all that sort of basic stuff that uh, you need to know before you can even write a line of assembly code in the Apple II. So. Amazing to think it's still got a life after 30 years. <laughs> I don't even know where you buy an Apple IIc anymore. They're probably around on eBay, but uh, they must be kind of rare. Quinn. Yeah, the uh, well, yeah, I can uh, speak to that as well. So the the, the basic two C's uh, are not too bad on eBay. They made enough of them that they're they're still around. Uh, the two C plus is definitely goes for a little more money. And the best way to get one uh, is to come to Kansas Fest, and uh, people are <laughs> selling and trading them and and so on. But uh, yeah, the prices on eBay they're a little crazy sometimes for some of the models. Depends uh, depends yeah. on the model, but uh, yeah, the ones that they made a lot of, you know, your basic. 2e and your basic 2c you know you can still pick one up on ebay for 40 bucks um yeah i haven't had the apple II for years I, a friend of mine kept his he's got number 92 he lives in the north vancouver area anyway his number 92 is interesting it's i don't know what color it is now but it doesn't have any vent holes cut oh into wow the side. he's got one of those oh, really wow. ones, yeah 
I've never seen any other computer Apple II with no vent holes. I mean, I'm sure they made a few, but not very many. Yeah, the uh, the first 100 or so of those don't have those holes. And in fact, um, Bob Bishop, who was a uh, he started the R and D lab at Apple with uh, with Woz and was there early on. He had I think number thirteen and he would run in his Apple II and just leave it on and it would come back and the plastic was actually sagging because it got so hot in there. That's a rare model, I would think. Oh yes, yeah. very, very. Yeah, and those those go for real money on eBay for sure. If you uh, if your friend needs a retirement plan, that might be it. Okay, well, Archie, if you're listening, that just keep that in mind. So uh, sort of on that subject, do you have any interest uh, these days in the Apple II? Do you have any interest in uh, picking one up again and playing with it? You know, not so much. Uh, I'd, I'd love to have one, just to have it, right? I might just hang mm-hmm. it on the wall or something. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no real interest in, in, in the 8-bit computing days. Uh, these days, uh, you know, if I'm doing any programming, it's as I mentioned earlier, I'm sort of into... I collect old maps, and, and, uh, and so I... I like everything about maps, and so I ended up learning how to program Google Maps, and so I do a lot of uh, interactive map programming, which of course is cross-platform. Although I use, you know, I'm doing all my development on a MacBook Pro, and with and I have my iPad by my side and my iPhone, so uh, it's sort of got an Apple flavor to it. But uh, it certainly works best on a Mac, as as they say. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but no, no, I really haven't felt any uh, need to um, get back into the 8-bit stuff. <laughs> <laughs> for the Apple II, I'm afraid. Aww. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's allowed. I do enjoy talking about it, though. <laughs> yeah. You you just described my desk uh, to a T, actually. I have the same setup. Uh, and uh, if, you're, yeah. if you are ever interested, uh, the same setup actually works great for Apple II development. You know, nowadays we have really great tools, something that the community has done, you know, since in, in, in the interim 30 years is built a great set of, of tools. You know, we have emulators and, and compilers and, and libraries and, you know, yeah. build pipelines and things that we couldn't possibly have dreamed of uh, in those days. So, you know, the development for the platform is just orders of magnitude easier than it used to be. Uh, okay, so good. Kind of a kind of a fun little hobby. But uh, well, if you find if you find a bug in Modem Magic let me know and I'll fix it. <laughs> yeah, I'll, you, you'll, you might get a sternly worded email someday. <laughs> well, if I find the source code, I'll send it to you. <laughs> yeah, they, honestly, the communication stuff, that's one area where it's a little tough because, uh, yeah, the infrastructure for that stuff no longer exists. You know, we don't have landlines and modems and, and BBSs and things to use that stuff with, unfortunately. But uh, right. there are some people uh, sort of dedicating themselves to recreating some pieces of that environment, but it's definitely an area that's harder to harder to revisit, unfortunately. Okay, okay. I'll send you my uh, source code for uh, InfoSearch, which is a database program I wrote a long time ago. <laughs> ah, there, all right, there. We go. You know, it's funny. I wrote that database program. It was pretty quick and really fast, most of it in assembly language. And uh, I remember very well in 1984, a couple of friends of mine bought Macs, and they were, I don't know what the Mac database program of the day was, but it was probably some Microsoft thing. But anyway, um, I remember them saying, oh, God, your, your Apple II database program is so much faster than the one on the Mac that I'm using. <laughs> and I went, yeah, that's probably because it's finely tuned assembly language. It uh, performs every trick in the book to get the uh, extra performance out. And the Mac version was probably written in some higher level language and uh, bloated a bit even then. Yeah, I used to uh, have the same conversations in the late 80s with uh, my friends that had Macs, and I had my 2GS, and frankly, the 2GS was better in virtually every way than some of those early Macs. Uh, I'm sure we'll get hate mail for that, but... uh, Well, it's kind of incredible that the Mac survived that first five years, isn't it? 
It really is. Yeah, I think it survived uh, through sheer force of Steve Jobs' will, honestly. Cause, uh, well, a lot, uh, of, a lot of loyal customers, too, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, but nowadays, of course, it's the thing to have. So, Mike, any other questions? Or? No, I, I, think we, I think we covered it pretty well. Gary, is there, there anything that um, we missed or that you'd like to add? No, I think we covered most of it. I can't believe I talked about Amdos and InfoSearch <laughs> and Modem Magic and 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 point to point and uh, and all those old books and 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 so on. Amazing. Well, thank you Amazing. for thank you for coming on and spending some time with us. Yeah, we really appreciate your time. Yeah, I enjoyed every second of it. So I appreciate the call. <laughs> it was great fun. Awesome. All right, thanks, Gary. Talk to you guys later. Bye. So again, Quinn, thank you for podcasting with me. Well, thank you, Mike, for tolerating my uh, relentless sarcasm. and Tolerating? I, I, it's all I think about when we're not recording. It's, oh. it's how, is she, how is she going to rip into me next time? Well, every day that Mike goes home crying is a good day in Quinn Ducky's book, let me say. That's... And when Quinn's not at it, you can send your hate mail right there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and thanks to, to Gary for being with us today. It was great to have him on the show. Yeah, that was a great interview. I thought that went really it well. It did. It did indeed. As I said in the interview, I'm uh, reading his books right now because I'm working on some stuff. We'll talk more about that later. Yes. Secret, secret projects. All right, everybody. We'll talk to you next month. Bye, everybody. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. To infinitum, something, something.